Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 132, Quis Custodiat Ipsos Custodes. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. I didn't want to frighten you with my Latin powers. (laughs) Actually, for those of you who speak Latin, I'm sure I did frighten you because I'm pretty confident that I butchered it. For those of you not in the Latin know, or who couldn't run to your particular version of an interweb browser fast enough, that is who watches the watchmen in Latin, which is where it came from in the first place. Uh, That's because this week our chapter, chapter 7 of the Scarlet Letter, is the Governor's Hall, and this is a little bit of inside intrigue into what goes on kind of politically behind the scenes around Hester. It's not pretty. So that's our chapter this week. For those of you who are new to the Craftlit family, welcome. Have a seat, sit down, put on your headphones, kick back, and if you are interested, there is a library of previous episodes. Um, There are two different places to find this library right now. First, if you are linking to the Blogspot page, that would be craftlit.blogspot.com or just plain old craftlit.com, you'll be able to find the library in the upper right-hand corner. There is a link to a completely different page full of downloadable MP3 files. If you, oh, Ashley, there are three different ways. If you are going to the Crafting a Life site, which would be crafting-a-life.com slash craftlet, you will get to uh, a page that has a number of menu links across the top. One of those would be the Craftlet library. The third way that you can access uh, previous MP3 files of Craftlet books and shows is to go to the craftingalife.com site and go to our swag link. And there are CDs that I have printed that I can send to you that are uh, entire compilations of the MP3 files for you. I started doing this, and I've explained this recently, uh, for Maryland Sheep and Wool and also for Sock Summit, which is coming up. Um, These will be on sale at Jenny the Potter's um, booth at Sock Summit as they were at Maryland Sheep and Wool because not everyone has high-speed dial-up. So if you have friends who you think would probably like the show but they just can't download the bloody thing, uh, let them know that there are CDs available. They're not expensive, really. I'm, I'm, I'm not even paying myself for the time. I just want to cover the cost of the labels and the um, sleeves and the CDs. So that is all that kind of news. So, welcome to the show if you're new. We're getting lots of new people all of a sudden, which is really exciting. And um, huge thank you to all of you. Um, I have tons of thank yous to say. People who have donated in April and May, I am simply not going to be able to email you all back in a timely fashion. It's, It's ridiculous, the backlog that I have for the last three weeks that I really just simply haven't been online. 
If you have donated in the last two months and I have not posted your name slash posted your name and linked to your blog or website from our show notes, please send me an email at heather at craftlit.com or mamaonits at gmail.com. Let me know that I haven't linked to you and let me know what you want me to link to and I will get on that right away. Um, just didn't want you to think that I didn't notice or I was being a lousy correspondent. I am being a lousy correspondent, but I'm overwhelmed which you know seems to be a theme lately it wasn't so much in the beginning I've, I've actually because I've been uh, transferring a lot of early CDs to uh, or early episodes to CDs I've had to re-listen and fix the audio on some and that's all been really good and I've been remember those early episodes they were ginormous I've been shrinking them back down to normal mortal size instead of pantheon of the immortals size and um and that's been really good and i'm relinking those to the rss feeds and it's all very time consuming and something that i don't get to nearly as enough as i should but uh i wasn't as busy when i started this <laughs> it kind of goes in waves i'm busy again i'm trying not to be i'm gonna work on that uh i have no donation incentive for the month of May because I knew I wasn't really going to be podcasting nearly enough for the month of May but for the month of June I am working on a new incentive for you. Uh, for those of you who were at Maryland Sheep and Wool, hello! Gosh it was good to meet you. I got to meet so many people. I had the best time and sadly I am not drinking my bottle of wine right now. It's the middle of the day. I'm podcasting on a Sunday in the middle of the day but there will be a podcast that will include wine from uh, from one of our listeners who you will hear from because I got audio. I got a lot of audio. I am still slogging through it to try and cull the bits and pieces that will be best for you to listen to. So that's going to come up. Uh, one of the things, though, that I do know will be an incentive for June is whoever wins will get a Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival sticker. One of the ones that looks like the DK stickers for Denmark or UK stickers for Great Britain, you will uh, get a Maryland Sheep and Wool Festival sticker that looks like that. So that'll be one one of the many things. Uh, so to sum up, uh, here's what May was like. Maryland Sheep and Wool, quick overnight kind of surprise trip to Los Angeles to the Inn at the Seventh Ray for a birthday dinner and back. Flying to New York with my mother. Flying to New York with my mother. There was a joke in there, but I just decided not to take it. Uh, for my sister graduating from NYU with her PhD, got to see lots of family, friends, stay in my old hood, yay, Park Slope, Brooklyn's in the house, had a great time, got to go up to Croton, yay, Croton, I completely missed seeing my old knitting group that I used to run at the Black Cow, uh, I missed them by six hours, <laughs> just, just to be brutal about it, that was really lousy, but uh, had a great time, uh, came back, and the next day, I had a house guest for the last week. So that is why you haven't heard from me. Initially, my house guest was going to be our guest reader for this week, but even that we couldn't swing. There were illnesses and children and insanity, and you know how it is. Along with Brooklyn, when I was in New York, I had the opportunity to see the play God of Carnage. This is by the same writer who wrote the play Art about a decade ago. If you are in New York, 
or ever have the opportunity to see the play God of Carnage, particularly if you have children, you really should go. It was amazing. Got to see James Gandolfini, who, by the way, I think stole the show. Uh, Marcia K. Harden, um, Jeff, D- Jeff Daniels, who was in The Purple Rose of Cairo, among many other things, and Hope. I suddenly can't remember her last name. I wanted to say Laura Linney, because, Hope Davis. I always get Laura Linney and Hope Davis confused. Maybe just because they're both blonde and beautiful and kind of the same age, but they really aren't the same actress at all. So I have to get over that. Anyway, they were all fabulous. The play was brutal, funny, funny, funny in a really brutal kind of way. And um, also got to go to my favorite gay bar, and sing show tunes at Marie's Crisis on Grove Street, 7th Avenue and Grove. If you're ever in Manhattan and you, like me, like to sing show tunes, whether you are gay or not, you will be welcomed. And if you go there after nine, you will be welcomed by Dexter. Dexter is probably the single most impressive piano player I've ever seen in my life. The man can play anything. All of the other piano players who come in, they all carry their cheat books with them and different show tune books and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, Dexter doesn't use a book. Dexter doesn't need a book. But you can ask him obscure stuff. (laughs) You can ask him anything. He played I Am I, Don Quixote, The Man of La Mancha, probably one of the hardest pieces of show tune music I have ever attempted to play. He played it for my husband without music. I'm just saying. If you love music and you're feeling brave and you want, you know, a decent beer or drink, go downstairs to Marie's Crisis. Marie's Crisis refers to Marie Antoinette. And of course, her crisis would be losing her head. (laughs) Not that they have a wicked sense of humor. There's a fabulous bar back. It's an old, old mirror. It turns out it's a 1930s piece of socialist art. It uh, is very clearly a piece of socialist art, and it's kind of interesting to look at it as this chunk of history. Not that the people who work there now are necessarily socialists, but that it's a very interesting piece of history. Kind of a WPA mirror barback. Uh, interesting place. Lots of fun. We sang late into the night with my friends from Croton, and that, that was a joy. Good, good friends, good times, good songs. And since then, uh, been back, and just so this all gets placed into time context for those of you who are listening out of order, I saw Star Trek on Friday with my husband, which was nice. It was the first time we were actually able to sit somewhere and talk to each other like adults. Before the movie started, we had lovely conversation, and then a grippingly good time during Star Trek. And then yesterday, Saturday, we took the boys to see Night at the Museum. And I am happy to say that according to Yahoo.com, Night at the Museum, a kid's movie, beat out Terminator. There's just something about that that I like. Not that I haven't loved the Terminator movies, because I have. Uh, I haven't seen this new one yet. I'm not sure if I, if I need to. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of there with the whole Terminator thing. But um, nothing disparaging to say about the, ter- the Terminator franchise. Just kind of glad to see a kid movie beaten out big old explosion bomb terminator film and and a kid movie with you know a nice message and funny people 
and smart kids and tough chicks and Amy Adams as Amelia Earhart was really quite wonderful I like her quite a bit and um, yeah night at the museum it was fun it was fun and I didn't feel like it was a waste of time the way some kids movies are you know the kids are laughing because it's kind of dopey not because it's a great film they were laughing because this was a great film and I, I really, Ben Stiller is my new hero. Actually, he's competing with Brendan Fraser on the kid movie thing because they both seem to be, you know, good dad types who are trying to do movies that their kids will enjoy. Robin Williams on Aladdin. It was the same thing. He, that was kind of groundbreaking. You guys don't remember this. When he did the voice of the genie for Aladdin, there weren't a lot of big name movie stars who came out to do voices in animated movies. If you remember Little Mermaid, n not really any A-list stars in that. Even Beauty and the Beast. I mean, Robbie Benson wasn't on the A-list when he did The Beast. At all. Not that he wasn't wonderful. He made a wonderful beast. But uh, uh, Robin, it was a big deal. And why did he do it? Because he wanted to make a movie that his kids could see. I love that. He was a lovely man. Anyway, as you can tell, it's been busy. Some of you have um, kind of nudged your way over to the new Craftlet show notes page, which I'm very excited about. As soon as it's really up and um, free of glitches, which I'm still finding, and I, I have a, a code monkey, a former student of mine who's, who's helping me on it, but he has finals and things like that, so it's this takes a little time. Um, once all of the glitches are out of it, I will be taking the craftlit.com address and moving it over so that that takes you to the, the new show notes page, which is very differently designed from the current show notes page. And I hope more user-friendly. That's the goal. I know Brenda did a, a big redesign on Cast On a while ago. I didn't understand why it took so bloody long. Now I understand dear night it's complicated i did get one email um, most of the emails that i've been getting are actually about the books that we've done previously so one of the things i'm trying to figure out how to do is to create a sandbox not the dropio site it's that kind of idea but i haven't really gotten it down yet i want to have a sandbox where instead of emailing me comments that you have about your uh, about previous books that you can post those comments to like a social community area of the Craftlet website so that you guys can all see what each other is saying about these books because some of these comments have just been spectacular. I got one on Ravelry just today about little women that I, it was long and I, I'm not gonna read it to you now, but I am, when I figure this out, I am going to post it because it was a brilliant comment and it totally went, went against everything else that we were saying about the book. So that was very exciting. However, I did get one email on the Scarlet Letter from a listener who does um, Renaissance embroidery, you know, like historically accurate reduxes of um, embroidery and handicrafts. And she went back and read the text again. And I think she is absolutely dead on right. It was a red piece of fabric and it was embroidered with gold to create the A. The A itself was probably still red, but it was outlined in 
very fantastical, fancy gold embroidery. How thick that border was, I'm sure she could probably make a reasonable guess because she knows more about Renaissance embroidery than I can even pretend to. Um, but the, the A itself was probably still red. And then there's some discussion she was going back and forth, and I've been going back and forth, about whether Hester would have cut that A out along the golden edge, or would have kept it as a square piece of red fabric. I'm going to have to go back and read that section again. Um, and then, of course, there's some discussion about whether she would have pinned it off to the side, or um, stitched it off to the side, or stitched it over her bodice, because a lot of the dresses during that time, she said, buttoned up the front would make it kind of not so good to be sewing that over the buttons. I'm just saying. So, uh, I need to go back and fix my, <laughs> my watercolor. <laughs> I'll be doing that later when I have some more free time. We're getting around to the Scarlet Letter chapter for this week. So, as I said, this week is the Governor's Hall. There, um, there are a couple things to know about this chapter before I start to read it. One is that Governor Bellingham, who is the governor that we deal with in this particular chapter, he was a real governor. Um, and there's a footnote to that effect. After his term as governor in 1642, Governor Bellingham served as magistrate or deputy governor until re-election in 1645. And... There is also somebody who is referred to at the end, uh, a Reverend Mr. Blackstone. This is just some other guy who's being mentioned. He was born in 1595, died in 1675. He was the first white settler in the Puritan, I mean, in the Boston area, who joined the Indians in 1634 after the arrival of the Puritans, who he dis disliked. <laughs> so he got there early and left early too to go hang with the natives. I don't think he was the only one, but, uh, but he was someone who was famous for having done it. So that gives you a little bit of background. And now we're going to get on with the good stuff. So uh, chapter seven, the governor's hall, Hester has to go and visit the uh, mansion. Mm, that's what they call it of governor Bellingham. Here's some things to think about while listening to this chapter. And then I'm going to talk more at the end of it. Uh, first off, remember way back in Pride and Prejudice, how we got to that chapter where she's describing Darcy's house. And we talked about how um, some people think that it's just Elizabeth's gold digger. And she's just talking about how fabulous the house is and everything. Um, but really, the description of the house was a metaphor for Darcy. Well, here we have another house that is a metaphor for uh, Governor Bellingham, but I think you could possibly probably also stretch it and say it's a metaphor for the larger Puritan society that Hester finds herself surrounded by. Now, I, I've you know as we've gone through the book, I've been reading emails and talking about the fact that uh, the Puritans weren't all bad. You can't have people like um, Anne Hutchinson and. Um, Anne Bradstreet, Elizabeth Bradstreet, uh, the poetess. You can't have those people and not have more people like them, you know, hanging out there. They're not all John Proctor from The Crucible. Uh, 
at the same time, Hawthorne, coming 200 years later, clearly had a bone to pick with the Puritans as a group, and specifically as his ancestors. So even if these guys weren't quite so bad for the purposes of the story, I think it's pretty safe to say that for the purposes of the book, they are hypocrites. Largely. Not entirely, but largely. And this is one of those chapters where that uh, dichotomy is going to become very obvious. Um, Listen, listen to the description of the house. Listen to, uh, I guess, descriptions of anything that's been made or wrought. Um, because it's all carrying weight. And listen to Pearl and what she's up to. That's one of the things we're going to talk about more at the end of the chapter. So, without hanging you up any longer, here is Chapter 7, The Governor's Hall, from The Scarlet Letter, by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Hester Prynne went one day to the mansion of Governor Bellingham with a pair of gloves, which she had fringed and embroidered to his order, and which were to be worn on some great occasion of state. For, though the chances of a popular election had caused the former ruler to descend a step or two from the highest rank, he still held an honorable and influential place among the colonial magistracy. Another and far more important reason that the delivery of a pair of embroidered gloves impelled Hester, at this time, to seek an interview with a personage of so much power and activity in the affairs of the settlement, it had reached her ears that there was a design on the part of some of the leading inhabitants, cherishing the more rigid order of principles in religion and government, to deprive her of her child. On the supposition that Pearl, as already had hinted, was of demonic origin, these good people not unreasonably argued that a Christian interest in the mother's soul required them to remove such a stumbling block from her path. If the child, on the other hand, were really capable of moral and religious growth, and possessed the elements of ultimate salvation, then surely it would enjoy all the fairer prospect of these advantages by being transferred to wiser and better guardianship than Hester Prynne's. Among those who promoted the design, Governor Bellingham was said to be one of the most busy. It may appear singular, and indeed not a little ludicrous, that an affair of this kind, which in later days would have been referred to no higher jurisdiction than that of the selectmen of the town, should then have been a question publicly discussed, and on which statesmen of eminence took sides. At that epoch of pristine simplicity, however, matters of even slighter public interest and of far less intrinsic weight than the welfare of Hester and her child were strangely mixed up with the deliberations of legislators and acts of state. The period was hardly, if at all, earlier than that of our story, when a dispute concerning the right of property in a pig not only caused a fierce and bitter contest in the legislative body of the colony, but resulted in an important modification of the framework itself of the legislature. Full concern, therefore, but so conscious of her own right that it seemed scarcely an unequal match between the public on the one side and a lonely woman backed by the sympathies of nature on the other, Hester Prynne set forth from her solitary cottage. 
Little Pearl, of course, was her companion. She was now of an age to run lightly along by her mother's side, and constantly in motion from morn till sunset, could have accomplished a much longer journey than that before her. Often, nevertheless, more from caprice than necessity, she demanded to be taken up in arms, but was soon as imperious to be set down again, and frisked onward before Hester on the grassy pathway, with many a harmless trip and tumble. We have spoken of Pearl's rich and luxuriant beauty, a beauty that shone with deep and vivid tints, a bright complexion, whose eyes possessing intensity both of depth and glow, and hair already of a deep and glossy brown, and which, in after years, would be nearly akin to black. There was fire in her, and throughout her. She seemed the unpremeditated offshoot of a passionate moment. Her mother, in contriving the child's garb, had allowed the gorgeous tendencies of her imagination their full play, arraying her in a crimson velvet tunic of a peculiar cut, abundantly embroidered with fantasies and flourishes of gold thread. So much strength of coloring, which must have given a wan and pallid aspect to cheeks of a fainter bloom, was admirably adapted to Pearl's beauty, and made her the very brightest little jet of flame that ever danced upon the earth. But it was a remarkable attribute of this garb, and indeed of the child's whole appearance, that it irresistibly and inevitably reminded the beholder of the token which Hester Prynne was doomed to wear upon her bosom. It was the scarlet letter in another form, the scarlet letter endowed with life, the mother herself, as if the red ignominy were so deeply scorched into her brain that all her conceptions assumed its form, had carefully wrought out the similitude. Lavishing many hours of morbid ingenuity to create an analogy between the object of her affliction and the emblem of her guilt and torture. But, in truth, Pearl was the one as well as the other, and only in consequence of that identity had Hester contrived so perfectly to represent the scarlet letter in her appearance. As the two wayfarers came within the precincts of the town, the children of the Puritans looked up from their play, or what passed for play with those somber little urchins, and spake gravely to one another. Behold, verily, there is a woman of the scarlet letter, and of a truth, moreover, there is the likeness of the scarlet letter running along by her side. Come, therefore, and let us fling mud at them. But Pearl, who was a dauntless child, after frowning, stamping her foot, and shaking her little hand with a variety of threatening gestures, suddenly made a rush at the knot of her enemies and put them all to flight. She resembled, in her fierce pursuit of them, an infant pestilence, the scarlet fever, or some such half-fledged angel of judgment, whose mission was to punish the sins of the rising generation. She screamed and shouted, too, with a terrific volume of sound, which doubtless caused the hearts of the fugitives to quake within them. The victory accomplished, Pearl returned quietly to her mother, and looked up, smiling, into her face. Without further adventure, they reached the dwelling of Governor Bellingham. This was a large wooden house, built in a fashion of which there are now specimens still extant in the streets of our older towns, now moss-grown, crumbling to decay and melancholy at heart with the many sorrowful or joyful occurrences, remembered or forgotten, that have happened and passed away within their dusky chambers. 
Then, however, there was the freshness of the passing year on its exterior, and the cheerfulness gleaming forth from the sunny windows of a human habitation into which death had never entered. It had indeed a very cheery aspect, the walls being overspread with a kind of stucco, in which fragments of broken glass were plentifully intermixed, so that, when the sunshine fell slantwise over the front of the edifice, it glittered and sparkled as if diamonds had been flung against it by a double handful. The brilliancy might have befitted Aladdin's palace rather than the mansion of a grave old Puritan ruler. It was further decorated with strange and seemingly cabalistic figures and diagrams suitable to the quaint taste of the age, which had been drawn in the stucco when newly laid on, and now had grown hard and durable for the admiration of aftertimes. Pearl, looking at this bright wonder of a house, began to caper and dance, and imperatively required that the whole breadth of sunshine should be stripped off its front and given her to play with. No, my little Pearl, said her mother, thou must gather thine own sunshine. I have none to give thee. They approached the door, which was of an arched form, and flanked on each side by a narrow tower or projection of the edifice, in both of which were lattice windows with wooden shutters to close over them at need. Lifting the iron hammer that hung at the portal, Hester Prynne gave a summons, which was answered by one of the governor's bond-servants, a free-born Englishman, but now a seven-years' slave. During that term he was to be the property of his master, and as much a commodity of bargain and sale as an ox or a joint-stool. The serf wore the blue coat, which was the customary garb of serving men of that period, and long before, in the old hereditary halls of England. "'Is the worshipful Governor Bellingham within?' inquired Hester. "'Yea, forsooth,' replied the bond-servant, staring with wide-open eyes at the scarlet letter, which, being a newcomer in the country he had never seen before. "'Yea, his honourable worship is within, but he hath a godly minister or two with him, and likewise a leech. Ye may not see his worship now.' "'Nevertheless, I will enter.' replied Hester Prynne, and the bond-servant, perhaps judging from the decision of her heir and the glittering symbol on her bosom that she was a great lady in the land, offered no opposition. So the mother and little Pearl were admitted into the hall of entrance, with many variations suggested by the nature of these building materials, diversity of climate, and a different mode of social life, Governor Bellingham had planned his new habitation after the residences of gentlemen of fair estate in his native land. Here, then, was a wide and reasonably lofty hall, extending through the whole depth of the house, and forming a medium of general communication, more or less directly, with all the other apartments. At one extremity, the spacious room was lighted by the windows of the two towers, which formed a small recess on either side of the portal. At the other end, though partly muffled by a curtain, it was more powerfully illuminated by one of those embowed hall windows which we read of, read of in old books, and which was provided with a deep and cushioned seat. Here, on the cushion, lay a folio tome, probably of the Chronicles of England, or some other such substantial literature. 
even as, in our own days, we scatter gilded volumes on the center table to be turned over by the casual guest. The furniture of the hall consisted of some ponderous chairs, the backs of which were elaborately carved with wreaths of oaken flowers, and likewise a table in the same taste, the whole being of the Elizabethan age, or perhaps earlier, and heirlooms transferred hither from the governor's paternal home. On the table, in token that the sentiment of old English hospitality had not left, been left behind, stood a large pewter tankard, at the bottom of which, had Hester or Pearl peeped into it, they might have seen the frothy remnant of a recent draught of ale. On the wall hung a row of portraits, representing the forefathers of the Bellingham lineage, some with armor on their breasts, and others with stately ruffs and robes of peace. All were characterized by the sternness and severity which old portraits so invariably put on, as if they were the ghosts rather than the pictures of departed worthies, and were gazing with harsh and intolerant criticism at the pursuits and enjoyments of living men. At about the center of the oaken panels that lined the hall was suspended a suit of mail, not like the pictures an ancestral relic, but of the most modern date, for it had been manufactured by a skillful armorer in London, the same year in which Governor Bellingham came over to New England. There was a steel headpiece, a curious, a gorget, and greaves with a pair of gauntlets and a sword hanging beneath, all, and especially the helmet and breastplate, so highly burnished as to glow with white radiance and scatter an illumination everywhere upon the floor. This bright panoply was not meant for mere idle show, but had been worn by the governor on many a solemn muster and training field, and had glittered, moreover, at the head of a regiment in the Pequot War. For though bred a lawyer, and accustomed to speak of Bacon, Coke, Noy, and Finch, as his professional associates, the exigencies of this new country had transformed Governor Bellingham into a soldier, as well as a statesman and a ruler. Little Pearl, who was as greatly pleased with the gleaming armor as she had been with the glittering frontspiece of the house, spent some time looking into the polished mirror of the breastplate. "'Mother!' cried she. "'I see you in here. Look! Look!' Hester looked by way of humoring the child, and she saw that, owing to the peculiar effect of this convex mirror, the scarlet letter was represented in exaggerated and gigantic proportions, so as to be greatly the most prominent feature of her appearance. In truth, she seemed absolutely hidden behind it. Pearl pointed upward also at a similar picture in the headpiece, smiling at her mother, with an elfish intelligence that was so familiar an expression on her small physiognomy. That look of naughty merriment was likewise reflected in the mirror, with so much breadth and intensity of effect that it made Hester Prynne feel as if it could not be the image of her own child, but of an imp who was seeking to mold itself into Pearl's shape. "'Come along, Pearl,' said she, drawing her away. "'Come and look into this fair garden. It may be we shall see flowers there, more beautiful ones than we find in the woods.' Pearl, accordingly, ran to the bow-window, and at the farther end of the hall, looked out along the vista of a garden walk, carpeted with closely-shaven grass 
and bordered with some rude and immature attempt at shrubbery. But the proprietor appeared already to have relinquished, as hopeless, the effort to perpetuate on this side of the Atlantic, in the hard soil, and amidst the close struggle for subsistence, the native English taste for ornamental gardening. Cabbages grew in plain sight, and a pumpkin vine rooted at some distance had run across the intervening space, and deposited one of its gigantic products directly beneath the hall window, as if to warn the governor that this great lump of vegetable gold was as rich an ornament as New England's earth would ever offer him. There were a few rose bushes, however, and a number of apple trees, probably the descendants of those planted by the Reverend Mr. Blackstone, as the first settler of the peninsula, that half-mythological personage who rides through our early annals, seated on the back of a bull. Pearl, seeing the rose bushes, began to cry for a red rose and would not be pacified. "'Hush, child, hush!' said her mother earnestly. "'Do not cry, dear little Pearl. I hear voices in the garden. The governor is coming and the gentleman along with him.' In fact, adown the vista of the garden avenue, a number of persons were seen approaching towards the house. Pearl, in utter scorn of her mother's attempt to quiet her, gave an eldritch scream, and then became silent not from any notion of obedience, but because the quick and mobile curiosity of her disposition was excited by the appearance of these new personages. End of chapter 7. So, I'm going to be able to go on and read chapter 8, but wanted to make sure that we, um, we covered a couple of things. So, first, just to make sure you didn't miss it, um, Hester is going to go deliver this pair of gloves that are really quite elaborate to the governor, which is fine, but she's also going because she has heard a rumor that they are going to take Pearl away from her. So, that would be bad. Because, um, you know, I mean, it's not like Hester has anything else. If they were, <laughs> they couldn't pick a worse thing to do to her. Um, the other thing is Governor Bellingham's house. I love that stucco in which fragments of broken glass were plentifully intermixed so that when the sunshine fell aslantwise over the front of the edifice, it glittered and sparkled as if diamonds had been flung against it. Me, I love this image because to me it just seems so completely not Puritan. And it, it seems to me to be one of those places where Hawthorne is really trying to make it very clear that whatever a good Puritan was, this guy wasn't one of them. This is uh, one of the places where the, the hypocrisy part becomes pretty strong. You know, that if, if your goal as a Puritan is to be godlike and, um, not godlike, but closer to God and kind of walk the walk, and simplicity and all that was supposed to be part of that MO, yeah, Governor Bellingham's not really sticking to that. The other thing is uh, we we have once again this very clear connection between the scarlet letter on Hester and Pearl. So you've got the two physical embodiments of her sin, one that is the letter on her chest and two that is her daughter. Um, obviously she has a close connection to her daughter. Nobody would be surprised by that. But it is interesting because you start to get the sense, and this will continue for quite some time, 
that she has kind of mixed, kind of ambivalent feelings about the Scarlet Letter itself. You know, in some ways, I mean, it's it's certainly a punishment, and it has changed her life, and um, and all of that. But at the same time, on some level, the thing she did to earn herself the letter wasn't all that bad. And and especially owing to the time in which this happened, it wouldn't. I mean, a woman in her position wouldn't have just had some crazy dark room, one night stand kind of thing happen. You know, this, I hesitate to say that it wouldn't have been accidental, because obviously I think the product of the activity was accidental. Um, But you, you gotta think that whoever she had the child with, she was in love. So, you know, it's a really interesting, very grown-up, very conflicted kind of problem she's got with this whole letter thing. It's interesting, no? So we've got Hester, uh, Hester's letter and Pearl being similar. And then we also have, once again, another moment where Pearl points out something that brings that scarlet letter, brings the symbol of the sin into very sharp detail. You know, there is Hester and a giant A on her chest um, in the in the minister's, um, I mean, in, sorry, in the governor's uh, breastplate of his armor. And P.S. to all of that, breastplate of armor? I mean, how many things did this man bring from England? I mean, the armor I know he had commissioned for for fighting in in wars there on the the new continent, but all of the family portraits and all of the this and the that and that. He's not letting go of England, and and not just not letting go of England, but he's not letting go of the parts of England that a lot of people seem to be trying to get away from by coming to the new world. So, Bellingham's an interesting character. We have time, however to read the next chapter, chapter eight, The Elf Child and the Minister. And I'm glad because these two chapters kind of go together and um, and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm checking. Yep, I think we have time to read on. Uh, you will notice that they said that not only was the governor there with some ministers, but also the leech. That would be Chillingworth. So here we go. Chapter eight. The Elf Child and the Minister Governor Bellingham, in a loose gown and easy cap such as elderly gentlemen love to endure themselves with in their domestic privacy, walked foremost and appeared to be showing off his estate and expiating on his projected improvements. The wide circumference of an elaborate ruff beneath the grey beard in the antiquated fashion of King James' reign caused his head to look not a little like that of John the Baptist in a charger. The impression made by this aspect so rigid and severe and frostbitten with more than autumnal age was hardly in keeping with the appliances of worldly enjoyment, wherewith he had evidently done his utmost to surround himself. But it is an error to suppose that our grave forefathers, though accustomed to speak and think of human existence at a state of merely of trial and warfare, and though unfeignedly prepared to sacrifice goods and life at the behest of duty, 
made it a matter of conscience to reject such means of comfort or even luxury as lay fairly within their grasp. This creed was never taught, for instance, by the venerable pastor John Wilson, whose beard, white as a snowdrift, was seen over Governor Bellingham's shoulder, while its wearer suggested that pears and peaches might yet be naturalized in the New England climate, and that purple grapes might possibly be compelled to flourish against the sunny garden wall. The old clergyman, nurtured at the rich bosom of the English church, had a long-established and legitimate taste for all good and comfortable things, and however stern he might show himself in the pulpit, or in his public reproof of such transgressions as that of Hester Prynne, still the genial benevolence of his private life had won him warmer affection than was accorded to any of his professional contemporaries. Behind the governor and Mr. Wilson came two other guests. One, the Reverend Arthur Dimsdale, whom the reader may remember as having taken a brief and reluctant part in the scene of Hester Prynne's disgrace, and in close companionship with him, old Roger Chillingworth, a person of great skill in physic, who for two or three years past had been settled in the town. It was understood that this learned man was the physician, as well as friend, of the young minister, whose health had severely suffered of late by his too unreserved self-sacrifice to the labors and duties of the pastoral revelation. The governor, in advance of his visitors, ascended one or two steps, and throwing open the leaves of the great hall window, found himself close to Little Pearl. The shadow of the curtain fell on Hester Prynne and partially concealed her. "'What have we here?' said Governor Bellingham, looking with surprise at the scarlet little figure before him. "'I profess I have never seen the like since my days of vanity in old King James's time, when I was wont to esteem it a high favour to be admitted to a court mask. There used to be a swarm of these small apparitions in holiday time, and we called them Children of the Lord of Misrule. But how got such a guest into my hall?' "'I, indeed!' cried good old Mr. Wilson. What little bird of scarlet plumage may this be? Methinks I have seen just such figures when the sun has been shining through a richly painted window, and tracing out the golden and crimson images across the floor. But that was in the old land. Prithee, young one, who art thou? And what has ailed thy mother to bedizen thee in this strange fashion? Art thou a Christian child? Ha! Huh? Dost thou know thou catechism? Or art thou one of those naughty elves or fairies whom we thought to have left behind us with the other relics of papistry in merry old England? I am my mother's child, answered the scarlet vision, and my name is Pearl. Pearl? Ruby, rather, or Coral, or Red Rose, at the very least, judging from thy hue, responded the old minister, putting forth his hand in a vain attempt to pat little Pearl on the cheek. "'But where is the mother of thine?' "'Ah, I see,' he added, and turning to Governor Bellingham, whispered, "'This is the self-same child of whom we have held speech together, "'and behold here the unhappy woman, Hester Prynne, her mother.' "'Sayest thou so?' cried the governor. "'Nay, we might have judged that such a child's mother must needs be a scarlet woman, "'and a worthy type of her in Babylon. "'But she comes at good time.' and we will look into this matter forthwith. Governor Bellingham stepped through the window into the hall, followed by his three guests. 
Hester Prynne, said he, fixing his naturally stern regard on the wearer of the scarlet letter, there hath been much question concerning thee of late. The point hath been weightily discussed whether we that are of authority and influence do well discharge our consciences by trusting an immortal soul, such as there is in yonder child, to the guidance of one who hath stumbled and fallen amid the pitfalls of this world. Speak thou, the child's own mother, were it not, thinkst thou, for thy little one's temporal and eternal welfare, that she be taken out of thy charge, and clad soberly, and disciplined strictly, and instructed in the truths of heaven and earth? What canst thou do for the child in this kind? I can teach my little pearl what I have learned from this, answered Hester Prynne, laying her finger on the red token. Woman, it is thy badge of shame, replied the stern magistrate. It is because of that stain which that letter indicates that we would transfer the child to other hands. Nevertheless, said the mother calmly through growing more pale, this badge hath taught me. It daily teaches me. It is teaching me at this moment lessons whereof my child may be the wiser and better, albeit they can profit nothing to myself. We will judge warily said Bellingham, and look well what we are about to do. Good Master Wilson, I pray you, examine this pearl, since that is her name, and see whether she hath had such Christian nurture as befits a child of her age. The old minister seated himself in the armchair, and made an effort to draw pearl betwixt his knees. But the child, unaccustomed to the touch of familiarity of any but her mother, escaped through the open window and stood on the upper step, looking like a wild tropical bird of rich plumage ready to take flight into the upper air. Mr. Wilson, not a little astonished at this outbreak, for he was a grandfatherly sort of personage, and usually a vast favorite with children, essayed, however, to proceed with the examination. "'Pearl,' said he, with great solemnity, "'thou must take heed to instruction, that so in due season thou mayst wear in thy bosom the pearl of great price. Canst thou tell me, my child, who made thee?' Now, Pearl knew well enough who made her, for Hester Prynne, the daughter of a pious home, very soon after her talk with the child about her heavenly father, had begun to inform her of those truths which the human spirit, at whatever stage of immaturity, imbibes with such eager interest. Pearl, therefore, so large were the attainments of her three years' lifetime, could have borne a fair examination in the New England primer, or the first column of the Westminster Catechisms, although unacquainted with the outward form of either of those celebrated works. But that perversity, which all children have more or less of, and of which little Pearl had a tenfold portion, now, at the most inopportune moment, took thorough possession of her, and closed her lips, or impelled her to speak words amiss. After putting her finger in her mouth, with many ungracious refusals to answer good Mr. Wilson's questions, the child finally announced that she had not been made at all but had been plucked by her mother off the brush of wild roses that grew by the prison door. This fantasy was probably suggested by the near proximity of the governor's red roses as Pearl stood outside of the window, together with her recollection of the prison rose-bush, which she had passed in coming hither. Old Roger Chillingworth, with a smile on his face, whispered something in the young clergyman's ear. 
Hester Prynne looked at the man of skill, and even then, with her fate hanging in the balance, was startled to perceive what a change had come over his features. How much uglier they were! How his dark complexion seemed to have grown duskier, and his figure more misshapen since the days when she had familiarly known him. She met his eyes for an instant, but was immediately constrained to give all her attention to the scene now going forward. "'This is awful!' cried the governor, slowly recovering from the astonishment into which Pearl's response had thrown him. "'Here is a child of three years old, and she cannot tell who made her. Without question, she is equally in the dark as to her soul, its present depravity and future destiny. Methinks, gentlemen, we need inquire no further.' Hester caught hold of Pearl and drew her forcibly into her arms, confronting the old Puritan magistrate with almost a fierce expression. Alone in the world, cast off by it, and with this sole treasure to keep her heart alive, she felt that she possessed indefeasible rights against the world and was ready to defend them to the death. "'God gave me the child!' cried she. He gave her her in requital of all things else which he hath taken from me. She is my happiness. She is my torture, none the less. Pearl keeps me here in life. Pearl punishes me too. See ye not, she is the scarlet letter, only capable of being loved, and so endowed with a millionfold the power of retribution for my sin. Ye shall not take her. I will die first." "'My poor woman,' said the not unkind old minister, "'the child shall be well cared for, far better than thou canst do it. "'God gave her into my keeping,' repeated Hester Prynne, "'raising her voice almost to a shriek. "'I will not give her up!' "'And here, by a sudden impulse, "'she turned to the young clergyman, Mr. Dimsdale, "'at whom up to this moment she had seemed hardly so much as once to direct her eyes.' "'Speak thou for me,' cried she. "'Thou wast my pastor, and hadst charge of my soul, "'and know'st me better than these men can. "'I will not lose the child. "'Speak for me. "'Thou know'st, for thou hast sympathies which these men lack. "'Thou know'st what is in my heart, "'and what are a mother's rights, "'and how much the stronger they are "'when that mother hast but her child and the scarlet letter.' Look thou to it. I will not lose the child. Look to it. At this wild and singular appeal, which indicated that Hester Prynne's situation had provoked her to a little less than madness, the young minister at once came forward, pale, and holding his hand over his heart, as was his custom whenever his peculiarly nervous temperament was thrown into agitation. He looked now more careworn and emaciated than as we described him at the scene of Hester's public ignominy, and whether it was his failing health, or whatever the cause might be, his dark eyes had a world of pain in their troubled and melancholy depths. "'There is a truth in what she says,' began the minister with a voice sweet, tremulous, but powerful, insomuch that the hall re-echoed and the hollow armor rang with it. The truth in what Hester says, and in the feeling which inspires her, God gave her the child, 
and gave her, too, an instinctive knowledge of its nature and requirements, both seemingly so peculiar, which no other mortal can possess, and, moreover, is there not a quality of awful sacredness in the relation between this mother and this child? Aye, how is that, good Master Dimsdale? interrupted the governor. Make that plain, I pray you. It, it must even be so, resumed the minister, for if we deem it otherwise, do we not thereby say that the Heavenly Father, the, the Creator of all flesh, hath lightly recognized a deed of sin, and made no account the distinction between the unhallowed lust and holy love? This child of its father's guilt and its mother's shame hath come from the hand of God to work in many ways upon her heart, who pleads so earnestly and with such bitterness of spirit the right to keep her. It was meant for a blessing, for the one blessing of her life. It was meant, doubtless, as the mother herself hath told us, for a retribution to a torture to be felt at many an unthought-of moment, a pang, a sting, an ever-recurring agony in the midst of a troubled joy. Hath she not expressed this thought in the garb of the poor child, so forcibly reminding us of that red symbol which sears her bosom? Well said again! cried good Mr. Wilson. I feared the woman had no better thought than to make a mountbank of her child. Oh, not so, not so, continued Mr. Dimsdale. She recognizes, believe me, the solemn miracle which God hath wrought in the existence of that child, and may she feel too what methinks is the very truth, that this boon was meant above all things else to keep the mother's soul alive and to preserve her from blacker depths of sin into which Satan might else have sought to plunge her. Therefore it is good for this poor, sinful woman that she hath an infant immortality, a, a being capable of eternal joy or sorrow confided to her care, to be trained up by her to righteousness, to remind her at every moment of her fall, but, but yet to teach her, as it were, by the Creator's sacred pledge, that if she bring the child to heaven, the child also will bring its parent thither. Herein is the sinful mother happier than the sinful father. For Hester Prynne's sake, then, and no less for the poor child's sake, let us leave them as Providence hath seen fit to place them. "'You speak, my friend, with a strange earnestness,' said old Roger Chillingworth, smiling at him. "'And there is a sweety import in what my young brother has spoken,' added the Reverend Mr. Wilson. "'What say you, worshipful Master Bellingham? Hath he not pleaded well for the poor woman?' "'Indeed hath he,' answered the magistrate, "'and hath adducted such arguments that we will even leave the matter as it now stands, so long at least as there shall be no further scandal in the woman. 
Care must be had, nevertheless, to put the child to do and stated examination in the catechism at thy hands or Master Dimsdale's. Moreover, at a proper season, the tithing men must take heed that she go both to school and to meeting. The young minister, on ceasing to speak, had withdrawn a few steps from the group and stood with his face partially concealed in the heavy folds of the window curtains, while the shadow of his figure which the sunlight cast upon the floor, was tremulous with the vehemence of his appeal. Pearl, that wild and flighty little elf, stole softly towards him, and taking his hand in the grasp of both her own, laid her cheek against it. A caress so tender, and withal so unobtrusive, that her mother, who was looking on, asked herself, "'Is that my little Pearl?' Yet she knew that there was love in the child's heart, although it mostly revealed itself in passion, and hardly twice in her lifetime had been softened by such gentleness as now. The minister. For, save the long-sought regards of a woman, nothing is sweeter than these marks of childish preference, accorded spontaneously by a spiritual instinct, and therefore seeming to imply in us something truly worthy to be loved. The minister looked round, laid his hand on the child's head, hesitated an instant, and then kissed her brow. Little Pearl's unwanted mood of sentiment lasted no longer. She laughed, and went capering down the hall so airily that old Mr. Wilson raised a question whether even her tiptoes touched the floor. "'The little baggage hath witchcraft in her, I profess,' said he to Mr. Dimsdale. "'She needs no old woman's broomstick to fly withal.' "'A strange child,' remarked old Roger Chillingworth. "'It is easy to see the mother's part in her. "'Would it be beyond a philosopher's research, think ye, gentlemen, "'to analyze that child's nature, "'and from its make and mould to give shrewd guess at the father?' "'Nay, it would be sinful in such a question "'to follow the clue of profane philosophy.' said Mr. Wilson. Better to fast and pray upon it, and still better it may be to leave the mystery as we find it, unless providence reveal it of its own accord. Thereby every good Christian man hath a title to show a father's kindness towards the poor deserted babe. The affair being so satisfactorily concluded, Hester Prynne, with Pearl, departed from the house as they descended the steps, it is averred that the lattice of a chamber window was thrown open, and forth into the sunny day was thrust the face of Mistress Hibbins, Governor Bellingham's bitter-tempered sister, and the same who, a few years later, was ex executed as a witch. Hist! Hist! said she, while her ill-omened physiognomy seemed to cast a shadow over the chillful newness of the house. "'Wilt thou go with us to-night? "'There will be a merry company in the forest, "'and I well-nigh promise the black man "'that comely Hester Prynne should make one.' "'Make my excuse to him, so please you,' "'answered Hester with a triumphant smile. "'I must tarry at home and keep watch over my little pearl. "'Had they taken her from me, "'I would willingly have gone with thee into the forest "'and signed my name in the black man's book, too, "'and that with mine own blood.' "'We shall have thee anon,' said the witch-lady, frowning, as she drew in back her head. "'But here, if we suppose this interview between Mixtress Hibbins and Hester Prynne to be authentic, and not a parable, 
was already an illustration of the young minister's argument against surrendering the relation of a fallen mother to the offspring of her frailty. Even thus early had the child saved her from Satan's snare. End of chapter 8. So a few things of interest are going on in this. Uh, a bunch of stuff. So going back to the beginning, um, King James, just so you know, King James was the first Stuart monarch in Britain, post-Elizabeth, ruled from 1603 to 1625. James I, the whole Jacobean thing, not a pretty picture. Not a pretty picture at all. And a rough are those like Shakespearean ruffled collars. Um, they grew and shrank in width, depending on the style of the day. So you'll hear about roughs every once in a while. So you've got the governor, you've got Wilson, you've got Chillingworth, and you've got Dimsdale. And, um, you know, it's kind of scary, the thought of them taking Pearl away from Hester. And they have, you know, a reasonably decent argument. But Hester is um, pretty forceful in her argument. Um, and when they talk about the catechism and Westminster Catechism, I'm going to read you the footnote because I know we usually associate catechism with Catholicism and these folks ain't so much the Catholic kind. So, the popular late 17th century schoolbook, The New England Primer, taught the alphabet by means of biblical examples and illustrations. The Westminster Catechism, adopted in 1648 in Edinburgh, was a Puritan question and answer method for teaching religion. So it was the Edinburgh Catechism. And just checking something, all of a sudden I went, wait a minute, dates, 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 dates. Yeah, adopted 1648, so you know we're after 1648. Uh, Pearl? Those of you with children, <clears throat> how often have you asked a child to perform something, the simplest of tasks, in front of company, <laughs> and had the kid, you know, just completely blotto the whole affair? <laughs> this whole scene where Hester asks, or where, where Wilson asks Pearl to repeat what she's learned of religion, something that Hester has taught her, and then to have Pearl just go, I have no heavenly father. I love that. That is so accurate. It's just uh, one one more point where Hawthorne is just a genius. Um, and for those of you who don't have children, you have that to look forward to. <laughs> those of you who don't yet have children, you can look forward to the moment when your child embarrasses you like that. It's fun. And it happens a lot with my younger son. Um, Dimsdale. Dimsdale's speech. Now, remember way back when he's up on the balcony of the hall and speaking down to Hester, when Hester will not name the father, Dimsdale's only response uh, is um, to talk about the strength of a woman's character and to repeat kind of over and over again, she will not speak. Um, here he has found his voice, and we finally get to see perhaps why Hester trusted him so much as a pastor that he, he does seem to get her and speak well for her, and um, with quite some passion for his wussy little frame. I'm sorry, did I say that out loud? His descriptions always make me think of a deer in the headlights. Kind of roadkill, 
guy. Uh, it's impossible for me not to think of him that way um, because he's always, you know, standing there weak and pale with his hand over his heart because something hurts so badly. Um, and yet, you gotta love him. He saved, he saved, he saved Pearl and Hester. Um, Mistress Hibbins. You will see Mistress Hibbins again. Um, this is also kind of foreshadowing to the burning times that are coming up shortly, where um, the Salem witch trials kind of take the place by storm or by fire, as it were. Um, it is an interesting contradiction that should not go unnoticed. That here you have Hester, sinner that she is, fallen woman who had a baby out of wedlock. Out of wedlock with the wedlock being a man who'd been gone for two or three years, just completely disappeared off the face of the earth. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, a little logic applied to the situation probably wouldn't have hurt anybody. However, on the one hand, you have Hester. On the other hand, you have Mistress Hibbins, a known witch, living with her brother, the governor, completely unpunished. You gotta love that. Hawthorne once again setting up this lovely dichotomy of the the real and kind of the scientific and the supernatural or the superstitious as things to be taken note of including when Mistress Hibbins hisses out the window and asks Hester to go in and meet Satan in the forest that night I love this at the end if we suppose this interview betwixt Mistress Hibbins and Hester Prynne to be authentic and not a parable just throwing it out there again could be real could be an extended metaphor just saying could be symbolic might not be real he does it all the way through the book and it's just such freaking genius i love this book um okay it's been an hour and 10 minutes and closing in on 30 seconds i think we're done. I'm going to do my best to record again on Thursday. I am back on weird tight deadlines for work, so it may not be till weekend. I might be recording on the weekends for a little bit. I hope not. I like doing it Thursday night much better for you and for me. But regardless, there will be another podcast this week, and that will bring us to chapter nine, not read by me. Just letting you know. So you'll get a break from my voice again. Please do check out this week's show notes. There are a number of links that I wasn't able to talk about during the show, but there are things that I think you'd be kind of interested in. And if you have a chance, go check out the Indigo Girls website. They are on tour again. Andrew and I got to see them the night I came home from New York, and it was great. We also got a chance to go backstage and talk to them. Andrew's friends of theirs from college. And just to show you how cool these two girls are, love them. They remembered me from having met me 20 years ago when I drove Andrew to visit them in the studio recording their very first CD, Indigo Girls. That one. The one was closer to fine. Have a great week. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com, or you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if you're
hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>